So uh, as we're continuing our series here on stewardship, it was wonderful to have Larry Hayashi with us last week as he came and spoke on how we can be good stewards of the gospel. And from the feedback I received, many people felt, felt very blessed by last week's service with, with wonderful worship music, and we had some baptisms, and there was a great message that Larry delivered. Of course, we can't forget about the skit, the skit they did, which was uh, quite popular. They're becoming known for that, actually, and and uh, the Hashi brothers delivered well. And I just thought, you know, Randy, where's, there's Randy. Randy, if the painting thing doesn't work out, you know, maybe dramatic comedy would, <laughs> would be in your future. We'll see. So that's a hard act for us to follow this week. So I thought we'd keep maybe a little bit simpler, uh, a little bit more standard. But we are going to do something a bit different today. Uh, in today's message, actually, Pastor Luke and I are both going to share. We're both going to uh, deliver the message for you today. So in a few moments, he'll come up here with me. And we will uh, be doing that together. And we'll be talking about what is probably one of the most common things that comes to mind as soon as you hear the word steward or stewardship. Everyone's mind quickly goes to money. Right, goes to money. Now, we're going to be talking about that, but that's actually not a, not a fair description of our message today because we're going a little bigger than that. More accurately, I, I think when we talk about the resources that God has placed in our hands, we're more accurately speaking about all of the possessions and material resources, which would include money, but, but it's bigger than that, the material resources and the possessions that God has given to us. Now, I know that management of these resources is a great source of challenge for many people. In particular seasons of life especially, it can be a challenge for a lot of people. I also know that it's a bit of a challenge when you see on the, on the schedule, I handed out that card a few weeks ago that showed what the weeks were going to be about in the series, and you may have saw this one on the calendar. And when you know that the sermon on this is coming up, there's different reactions that people have at times. Sometimes people approach a message like this with a bit of suspicion. They might have thoughts like, well, is, is the bank account slipping out the church? So we're going to have a sermon on, on tithing. Is this the start of a soft launch for a capital campaign? Or, I know, it's budget time and the staff want raises. And so we need to have a message on money. Other people approach a message like this as a bit of a tension that they feel when they know that this is the subject. Because there are people in our midst where times are tight. And you might be thinking immediately, right out of the gates, you can't get water out of a rock. Things are crazy right now. In the future, when they're less crazy, I'll give like crazy. But right now, things are just crazy. And so it's a tension that exists. Other people will just tune it out. Other people will think, I've been in church a long time. I've heard it before. There's nothing new that's going to come from this. And so I know I should give more. But hey, I do what I can. And we've worked it out in our lives. Now, there's these different views that people have as we approach a subject such as this. And I don't know where each of you might be feeling, where each of you may be as we approach this topic. But I understand it can be a sensitive subject. And so I want to make you some promises right out of the gate. I promise you today there will not be any big ask at the end of the message. We're not setting you up as a means to an end. That's not the purpose of this here. We're not in any sort of crisis as a church, which leads us to, to talk about the subject. In fact, if we were in a crisis, I wouldn't be talking about this because it would be construed as, as being uh, manipulative a little bit. We're not in crisis. Things are actually quite healthy financially within the church. Um, the, the leaders of the church, uh, you folks, have been giving generously. We've tried to manage our resources fairly, and we're actually in a healthy position, which makes it actually a good time to talk about a subject such as this. And there's actually also no capital campaign coming up that gets launched out of this, and certainly by no means do I want anybody to feel a burden of guilt that comes out of this topic as well. Now that being said, if during this presentation today you feel any sorts of conviction of the Spirit within you, 
if you do feel like this is an area for potential growth, if God wants to speak to you through this message today, I encourage you to not shy away from that, however, but to press into it and to examine what might God want to share with me. What is God's spirit wanting to, to challenge me of that I may be able to grow deeper in my relationship with him? So our purpose for today, our hope and our prayer at the end of our message today is that we will be informed about God's view of material wealth and the possessions that he has blessed us with, but also that we will feel challenged to look beyond the material. I, will, I hope that today we'll be able to look beyond the material to the relational. Because there is a connection between our relationships and the gifts that we give. You see, there's a connection between relationship and gifts. And those who see God as being one in their lives that they're in a meaningful relationship with, that has an effect upon the gifts that they will give. Now, this might be a curious concept for some, and it's, it's not unique just to our relationship with God. It actually exists in the world all around us. Uh, for example, on Valentine's Day, like many of you here, I'm sure as, as a couple, you maybe went out for dinner. That's, that's what Nadine and I did. We went out for dinner, and, and it was a beautiful evening. We went out for dinner, and there was candlelight on the table, and we stared into each other's eyes. We held hands. And we, we, we did that, that linked arm drinky thing that they, that they do, right? And hours just seemed to just, just fly by. That, that's not actually what happened. In truth, in truth, we went to Boston Pizza to watch some hockey. And then she had a meeting to go to afterwards. So that's actually how it went down. But, but why, did I bring up, why did I bring that meeting up? Well, here's the point. That evening on Valentine's Day, I gave two gifts that evening. See, to Nadine, I gave her the gift of a pair of diamond earrings. Also that evening, I gave our waitress a tip, about 10 bucks. Now, those are two very different gifts. But rightfully so, they're two very different relationships that I have with those people. You know, if I had given Nadine $10 for 22 years of marriage and for three kids and for, well, frankly, just putting up with me for all the time, that's worth more than $10. And if I had given the waitress a pair of diamond earrings, that would have led to some questions from my wife about how well do you know this waitress and how often do you come here? And, and well, the service just wasn't that good anyways. <laughs> but you see, in that example, there's a connection between our relationships and the gifts that we give. And so it begs a big question. Who do we see God? Who do we see God to be in our life? Like, like in light of our answer to that question, it has an impact upon our view towards our even willingness to give gifts. But once we get beyond that, the type of gifts that we actually end up giving. If we see God to be the owner of all things, and if we come to see ourselves as the ones who are in a meaningful relationship with him, who are richly blessed people, who are called to be on mission for God, then that will have an impact upon the gifts that we give. And so we're going to talk about that subject today, about how Christians, how followers of Jesus Christ are to honor God through their acts of giving, which is essentially an expression of our relationship with him. And so to begin getting into some more of the meat and potatoes of that, I invite you to consider the following video and how much it is possible to accomplish with the gifts that God has given us. 
Well, who knew that giving generously could possibly achieve so much? There, there was a lot of themes that ran through that video. We, we saw that giving has a big impact upon being on mission, about reaching our community, that it helps us to, to reach the lost, to feed the hungry, to, um, to achieve the ability to help those who are in need. Even the ability to, to worship and grow deeper in our personal faith with Jesus Christ. So clearly the Bible has a lot to say about, about money and about resources. Uh, you may not have known this, but actually, in fact, out of all the topics the Bible speaks of, money is number one. Over 800 times we find the money subject come up in the Bible. Over 2,200 verses relate to money within the Bible. So there's a lot that's to be said on that. You know, but there's one question that, that I've been asked a number of times over my years as a pastor when we talk about this subject is, well, for a Christian, like, like how much is enough? And, and, and Luke, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but what type of lifestyle a Christian should lead in, in regard to this subject? Yeah, oftentimes we think of, like, we look out and we say, okay, God's done different things through different people, and these people have something, these people have something, what's enough? Well, there's kind of three ideas to keep your lifestyle in check. One of them is, is to be content. Paul tells us in First uh, Timothy 6 that uh, we are to be content. We know that Paul has been rich, he has been poor, he knows what contentment is. So you need to focus on God and not on the things of um, the world, right? The second is oftentimes we, we relate to the idea of that we should just sell everything, we should be poor, right? And that kind of a thing. But scripture is very clear in First Timothy that uh, you are to provide for your family if you have one. So you shouldn't be selling off everything. Maybe you sell off part of something and, and uh, change your family dynamic a little bit in terms of needs versus wants. But you need to provide for your family. And lastly, in First Timothy 6, we see that God wants us to enjoy things. It's, he gave it to you to enjoy. It is his. He wants you to enjoy it. So... Um, in stewarding our resources, though, a lot of times people say, is it okay to have money? That comes up a lot. And we see the thought of money comes to this money root of all evil kind of idea, right? So money just must be evil. Well, in 1 Timothy 6.10, it tells us that um, the idea of that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So it's really the love idea. That's the stewardship. Are you in love with money more than you're in love with God? And the principles really come up in that it's all God's anyway. It's his purpose. It's his plan. And if you find yourself sometimes thinking that we have this human tendency that we can do this, your hands become very closed. And the idea is, and our series name is With Open Hands, that it's all God's anyway. And the thing, the kind of key point to think of is the role that God plays in your life impacts the way you view what you give. If God, if you're not having this deep relationship with God, you may view things a little bit differently than if you have this relationship where it's God's anyway. So, you know, Mark, do you think we see any of these principles through scripture that I've talked about? Yeah, as you've you've been describing some great things there, we we definitely want to go back to scripture for any sort of guidelines or any principles we want to live out. And and in fact, we we do see this. I mentioned there's thousands, over 2,000 verses on this in scripture, but there's actually a a thread that flows throughout scripture uh, about this connection between our gifts 
in our relationships. We find it actually even in the earliest books of the Bible, going right back to, to the beginning of the Old Testament. We see that God had a desire for his people to give, and, and he, he encouraged them to give what he referred to as the uh, first fruits. You may, you may have heard that term before. If you've been around church for any period of time, you've probably heard that term first fruits. I, when I pray for the receiving the offering, I often use that term. But even though you may have heard it, you may not fully understand what, what do we actually mean by first fruits. Well, first fruits literally refers to the first portion. See, the first portion. And it relates back to uh, a Jewish festival that would happen in the spring that is recorded in Leviticus 23. I don't know, anybody read Leviticus lately? Probably, probably not. That's no. like, hey, right on. That's great. It's not kind of a go-to book, but there's some wonderful things in Leviticus still. And we see that in Leviticus that God institutes this, this feast of first fruits. And in that, he commands this. He says that when you come into the land that I am to give you, and when you reap of its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Now, the first fruits, meaning the best portion from the first of your crop, that amount, that portion is an offering to God. That belongs to God. In, this, in keeping with our understanding of stewardship that we've been talking about over the last number of weeks, we can see that this part belongs to him, and by giving it to him, we are acknowledging that fact, that in reality, it is his, and we're placing our trust in him. But in the Old Testament, we also see that it's not just crops. And people are thinking, whew, I'm not a farmer. I'm off the hook here. It's not just crops. It actually goes beyond that, because we also see then later on in yeah, or previously in Exodus 13, it was actually applied to, to livestock. It was even applied to the firstborn of, of children. And, and in, uh, in God's conversation with Moses at the, just after the burning bush, it even refers to the nation of Israel itself is referred to by this term first fruits. Now, Deuteronomy 26 gives us a little more insight to what does this all mean. So we know it's, it's the best portion of the first, but, but what does it all mean? What does that look like? Well, Deuteronomy 26 gives us a little more insight into this. And Deuteronomy is essentially Moses' farewell address. The book of Deuteronomy is the people are on the edge of entering into the promised land after wandering for a generation. And they're about to go through a change of leadership as well as Moses passes the mantle to, um, to Joshua. And in this farewell address, he's recalling the history of the people, the wander of the people, the commands of the people. And so he, at this point in Deuteronomy 26, he refers back to this uh, passage in Leviticus. And, and he says to this to the people as they're about to enter into this promised land. And he repeats that line from Leviticus where he says, When you enter the land that God has given to you, and then when you settle in it, you take the best portion of the first crop and you bring that to the place of worship that you've established, and you give it to the priest. And when you do that, and in the process of doing that, you are making a declaration. And here's the declaration he says that they're making. In doing that, you're declaring, we have arrived, we have received the inheritance that God has promised. We were once a people in slavery. We were once in bondage. But God heard our cries for help. God saw the pleas that we put forth. And he came and he rescued us by his mighty hand. And because he has been faithful to fulfill his promises... And we have entered into this land, we now bring this offering. And so we give back the first. We give back the best portion, trusting that he will continue to provide for us in the days ahead as well. And after they make that declaration, it says that all of the people, all the people they're offering and all those people in that place are to rejoice and praise God for all of the good things that he's given them. 
So we, we can see from this, this offering, this act of first fruits, that there's a direct connection between their relationship with God and the gifts they give. If they weren't, if they weren't the people of God, they wouldn't be giving those gifts. If they, if they weren't living under that blessing, if they hadn't been brought into that land as a promised people, obviously this wouldn't be something they'd be doing. There's a connection between the gifts and the relationship that they have. And so it positions God as the owner and the provider of all things and his people as the blessed recipients who have a responsibility to be good stewards of what he's given them. But there's a deeper level to this as well. I want to take you to to a bit of a deeper understanding of what's taking place in this too because we can see some other principles that are happening within the context of relationship. Number one, we see that this is an act of faith. That when we bring the first, there is no guarantee of any more. When we bring the first, uh, in particular of, of bringing the first sheaf of wheat we have, we don't know if there's going to be a drought. We don't know if locusts are going to come and eat the rest. We don't know if thieves are going to come and kick us off our land and take what we have. We don't know that. But we have faith. And we know that this is possibly only the first and only, but as an act of faith, we give it to God, trusting he will provide more. So the first thing is a bit of faith. The second one is that we, it's an act of sacrifice, right? So if we, were, if we think back, you know, you actually had to take this to the priest, right? So it wasn't just like you're right now to check like kind of like today, like banking and things like that didn't happen. Um, it was a sacrifice, but it, and it was also not from your leftovers, as Mark talked about, right? Like it's the idea that you gave your first not knowing what was going to happen from there. Um, oftentimes it might hurt or it might cause you to give up something. Because it really is a true sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we're, if we're giving in faith, and if our giving reaches that ability to sacrifice, we've now entered a third principle, which is worship. It's a form of worship that we're giving to God. That as we give that to him, we're acknowledging him as the owner. We're also acknowledging him as the provider. And as we're giving in faith, we're saying, God, I acknowledge you as the owner provider of all good things in the past, and I'm making a statement that I'm placing my trust in you for today and the future. And so we're worshiping him for his goodness. So we see in this first fruits this idea that it is an act of faith, of sacrifice, and of worship. Now this was formally instituted while the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. But I think we can actually see these principles much earlier than even that in Scripture. We're near the beginning of Scripture, but even a little bit before that we even see these, these, these things come true. Yeah, like the story of Cain and Abel. Um, where Cain had given of his leftovers after he kept his share. He made sure he had enough, right? And uh, where Abel gave of his firstborn, not knowing what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so difference between giving from leftovers, giving from firstborn, and Cain and Abel. And we know that God took one offering and didn't take the other. Absolutely. One was acceptable, one wasn't. A little bit later on in Genesis, we see uh, the account of Abraham and Isaac, where God asked Abraham to give, to sacrifice his one and only son. Abraham didn't wait till he had 10 sons. And then he picked the least favorite. <laughs> they go off and do that, right? That wasn't what was happening. God said, I want you to give me, make sacrifice of your one and only son. I can't imagine how difficult that was. Talk about an act of faith and sacrifice and worship being lived out. Only having the promise of more, but not actually having that realized within your life. Yeah. And uh, we also learn it from the fall of Jericho, right? Like this was the first city in the promised land that God had promised. And, you know, the walls fell down after they went around seven times. And God made it clear that all the first, though, belonged to him. And because of that, you know, God wants to be first in your life. But 
we see there were a couple people in that story that decide to uh, break Israel's faith once again and uh, not put God first. So clearly we can see that the first portion is important to God. And that by acknowledging him in the giving of that first, it is an expression of faith, of sacrifice, and worship, which actually is also an expression of our relationship that we are to have with God. But what do we mean by first? Let's qualify that a little bit. What do we mean by first? Because, you know, how much, how much are we talking about here in terms of first, giving the first? Well, in, if we go back to the Old Testament, so let's go back to in Leviticus 27, we find out where first is kind of defined. The standard tithe was the first 10%. Um, it's really, that was your first thing. But it wasn't a new thing, because Abraham, it ha- he gave his first 10% in Genesis, and Jacob did as well. And so this is really the idea that they knew the first belonged to God. They bring the first to the temple. And it really was the establishment of the standard giving in the Old Testament. Okay. So that's sort of the, uh, a fairly clear understanding of the Old Testament standard of bringing in the first fruits, and it was considered to be a 10% portion of, of what God had blessed them with. But, but is that what we should be abiding by even today? Like, I know there are many Christians, probably even people here, who this is a question they wrestle with a little bit, that as, as Christians who are under, referred to as the new covenant, like, mm-hmm. like, what does that look like for us today? And is there any connection between our gifts and relationship to God that we find in the New Testament? There is. There is some. Uh, Jesus did affirm the Old Testament law, but he did take it a step further. And for Jesus, he was worried about it becoming a rule, that it was something that basically we would just do as a duty automatically, and that was the thing. And that the Pharisees didn't want to focus on the other issues around them as well. So we see in Luke um, 6.38 is the measure we use. And it says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So if, you, if we use the law, we're in danger of really struggling with that duty, that sense of duty. Like, God wants you to give him all of it. And so as we talked about sacrifice and things like that, it might be more than the number. Uh, so it does go a step further as we talked about those faith principles of worship, faith, and sacrifice. But maybe you're saying, you're sitting here and you're saying, hey, it's really crazy, like Mark talked about. I can't give. You know, I'm just struggling, whatever. Well, if we were only in the law, we would say, okay, yeah, right now you might not be able to give 10%. But because you have Jesus, it's relational. Maybe start with 1%. It's better than zero. You start to honor God slowly. You may be surprised at what he does. He does do amazing things. So, like, for Mark and I, um, it's interesting, you know. Do you have a time when, in your life where tithing was tough? Or maybe that uh, you, you contemplated whether, what tithe you should give? Most definitely. There's, um, you know, both of us are, are tithers. Uh, but I can't say that that was the case for my entire life, for our entire married life. There were times where, just like many people here, we went through seasons where it was skin picking. There wasn't a lot around for us to to have left over according to the budget we had created. And then I would look at that. I, I, I kind of had my mind that, that 10% is what I need to do. And I was actually debilitated by that. I thought, well, I can't do 10. And so I just froze. And essentially, we did nothing for a long time. Now, if 10 is the goal, we will never say that's a bad goal. Uh, I would say actually 10 maybe is, is a starting point. 
for some people if that's where they're already at. But I don't want it to be a debilitating number because that's what happened to us. And so I felt really convicted by this. God had constantly been convicting me on this matter that this is something that he wants me to do because I'm in a relationship with him. Not because I was becoming a pastor or things like that, because it was in a relationship with him. So I set out to decide, to say, you know what, 1%. I I have to start the habit. I'm not going to be debilitated by the number anymore. I just got to start the habit of doing this. And it wasn't long before one became two and two became four, and it started to grow in percentage, not out of obligation, not out of duty, but because, you know, as I did this and it became a habit, there was a joyful experience to it, which is hard to understand unless you, you start doing that. And I can honestly say that for, for well over six, probably seven years now, we have not missed a single payday of giving something to the Lord. And uh, it's been following that system, and it continues to climb to the point where Nadine and I even have conversations now about, well, how can we, how can we go beyond? Like, like, what does the next step look like in that in our lives mm-hmm. to be generous with what God's blessed us with? Yeah, I remember when uh, Kelsey and I uh, had uh, first moved back to Montana after seminary. You know, we, had, uh, we found out on our way home, many of you know this story, that we were going to have a baby. Um, I hadn't been confirmed by the church that we were going to work at, and... Uh, so we had very little money even when we became on staff. They were restarting and that kind of a thing. And so there were times, I must say, that, like, things are expensive when, you have a, when you're starting to have a baby, right? Like, you have to amass all this stuff, and they want to – you got to get a nursery ready and all that other kind of stuff. And there were times I lacked faith where I didn't think that God was big enough to provide for my needs. Um, and there were days where it felt painful for me to write that check. And so, but as I've seen God work through it, God knew. I can tell you, we have never honestly gone without a need. Now, a want, yes. Now, if I want a new car, you know, that might be different. But um, we've never gone without any needs. God is faithful with it. So, And often when we talk about money, a verse comes to mind in Malachi 3.10 about that God tells us to test him. It's the one time in scripture where he really pushes us to say, test me on this. Be faithful. Yeah, the one and only time. Other places he says, don't test me. Don't <laughs> test God. But here he says, this is the one time. If you want a chance to test me, this is the one area. Yeah. And I will open those floodgates for you. You know, and as, as we talk about that verse and about these stories, it reminds me of uh, an example from the New Testament that Paul shares with us in, in 2 Corinthians, uh, found in chapter 8, where he talks about the generous giving of the church of Macedonia. Some of you may be familiar with that story. But as he, as he tells about that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, we see that this people, this, this church in Macedonia, was going through ridiculously severe trials and extreme poverty. And, and that was the situation that, that they, were, they found themselves faced with. But then Paul tells us that in spite of the circumstances that they currently found themselves in, that in spite of that, their overflowing joy welled up in rich generosity, which just seems like a mismatch of situation to response. And, and as he goes on to explain, we start to see how these things actually work together, though. You see, the point is this, that they had poverty in trials where others around them probably were at times saying, no, 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 we'll give you a pass this time. You've got to get your house in order. You've got to get these things in order. You know, then you, you can give later. Just get these things straightened out first. But as Paul tells us that they pleaded with him, even in spite of their circumstances, they pleaded with him for the opportunity that they could give to this collection that he was taking. 
because they did not want to allow anything to steal their joy. Because their joy came from God. It came from the relationship with God. And the loss of something, the absence of a material possession in their life, could not steal their joy because that was secondary to the place that God had in their lives. Because God took first place and nothing could steal the joy that came from that relationship, even if there was the material aspects that they had to go without in the midst of that. And then in summary of this account that he shares with us, he says, Paul declares that they exceeded everyone's expectations in their giving because they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. See, the grace of God in their lives made all the difference. That made all the difference in this situation. It was the basis of their relationship that they had with God. It was also the basis of the giving that they were able to give to God. They didn't give out a compulsion. They didn't give out of a sense of duty where we have to do this if we're going to be good Christians. It wasn't a compulsion. They didn't give to look good or to try and kind of cover up the poverty that they were in. They didn't give as a means to an end. If we give, maybe God will give back and we'll end our poverty. That wasn't the motivation behind why they gave. It was an expression. In some cases, it was even the proof of where their joy came from. And in this story of great generosity, we again see this aspect of faith, of sacrifice, and worship, as there's a connection between the gifts we give and the relationship that we have with God. Yeah, I agree. And that really brings up a verse that is in, for my heart, from Matthew 6, um, which states, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And it really comes to this idea of allegiance of money versus Jesus, right? We know from Matthew 26 that you're, you can't love both. You either love one and hate the other or, you know, and uh, that idea, you know, of that. Uh, it's really, though, in this New Testament time about a relationship, you know. Think about the story of the rich young ruler in Jesus, you know. He wanted him to sell everything, but part of why he wanted him to do that was an act of faith, sacrifice, and worship, Right? For him to sell all his possessions, but his hands were so closed that he just couldn't do it. And what happens a lot in our lives is idolatry can take place. It takes that top spot of God. You know, some people, for some people, it might be money like we're talking about today. Maybe it's, you know, being an Oilers fan instead of a Flames fan. Um, <laughs> for some of us, maybe it's uh, Facebook, you know, like you got to check out what's going on, see how many likes I got, whatever it might be. We can make an idol out of anything. These things aren't inherently bad. Like we talked about God wants you to enjoy what he has given you. It just can't take first place in our life. You have to understand that God's priorities are for him to be first in your life, in everything. And that includes in your giving, your walk, all of those things. There is a connection between our relationships and the gifts we give our relationship with God, and the gifts we give. But in the New Testament, really what it is, is the standard we follow is not a number but a person. Not a number but a person. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to put it when we, when we see this thread that runs throughout Scripture, that, um, that we are given some guidelines in the form of numbers and whatnot. But if we focus on that, it, it, it has in that direction of duty and compulsion. But, but it's more about a person, where the standard is, is Jesus Christ. And that reminds me of a a couple of conversations I've had with um, with one gentleman in particular a couple of years back who who God had really richly blessed. Um, he was a very humble man, but if you got to know him, he was an extremely, extremely wealthy man. And so he wrestled with this because to him, 10% didn't make him blink. He just, 
he had, he had enough money that 10% was, it was nothing. There was no challenge. There was no faith. There was no sacrifice. Um, knowing his heart, there was probably some worship. But he wrestled with the fact that there was no faith and sacrifice. And so he would often ask me as his pastor, Mark, how do I, like, how do I reconcile this? And so as we talked about it, we talked about in terms of this, where are you trying to fulfill this command in terms of a number? Or are you trying to fulfill it in terms of a person? And as we started to talk about the example of Jesus Christ, the example he set and how he gave, and what that might look like translated <coughs> into the lives in which, in the context which he found himself, he started to realize that he was focused too much upon the number, but he actually needed to, to go well beyond that, to reach that point. I won't say what percentage it was, it's you know, not the point. The point is that he went beyond that to, the, to a moment where he was starting to live on the edge of faith, mm. and then a little bit beyond. And he was actually to a point of sacrifice where he, it cost him something personally to give. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to see how God finished that story um, where God continued to richly bless him in, in his efforts to do that. Yeah, um, many of you might know the pastor, Rick Warren. Um, one of the stories I love about him is that, you know, he gives 90% of his stuff away and keeps 10. He's decided to flip the equation. And it may not be, we not every one of us can do that, but for him that's what it took to make sacrifice, worship, and faith was to be able to say, can I do this um, in order to uh, further God's kingdom? Right. So I, I think from all that we've covered so far this morning, hopefully we can see there's this consistency in God's plan for the manner in which he wants us to steward the resources that he's given to us. And that the basis for how we are to be good stewards of all these resources really comes from our relationship with him and ultimately from his love for us that draws us into that relationship we have with him. You see, right from the very beginning of Scripture, God desired for his people to give to him the first, that first fruit. Not because he's greedy, not because he wants to steal their enjoyment or keep them in check or under his thumb. That wasn't what it was about. It was about an expression of a relationship that they had to be with him. And when we give of our first fruits, we're, we're kind of joining with them in that and, and making that declaration that they made at the time of giving. And, and as we give to God what he has challenged us to give, we're effectively saying, number one, I recognize you, Lord. I recognize you and your goodness in my life above all else. I'm putting you first in my life, Lord. We're also saying in that act that I trust you, Lord. I trust you for your goodness. I trust you in your promises. And I know that if there's a sacrificial aspect to what you're challenging me to do, that you will take care of us. I trust you, Lord, that you will look after us. You see, we're not to give out of compulsion or duty. That verse that Phil read at the beginning was, was quite fitting. It should be an act of joy as we get to do these things. And that joy only comes, again, from that relationship, understanding that aspect of the relationship. We shouldn't do it out of desire to look good. Keep up with the Joneses, as they say. We shouldn't give out of manipulative aspects, kind of a means to an end. That would actually be a violation of the relationship that we're called to, to be giving out of. Instead, we can follow that example of Jesus, who really set the new standard for what it means to give under the New Testament covenant. And we can strive to emulate him. Because, see, God gave us this command to give back to him. Yep. But he didn't just command it. He actually exemplified it. Because God gave of his first fruit. He gave... Um, of his son Jesus Christ in which we find the ultimate fulfilling of what it means to give of our first fruits. And in that giving, in that sacrifice, 
They set the standard for it. As God sent his one only son to walk this earth and ultimately to give his very life for our sins. And we are called then to, to give sacrificially in faith as well. And that's what God did. He gave sacrificially in faith. Because he gave while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, God gave Jesus Christ in faith in hopes that we would one day give our lives to him. To the one who also fulfilled that sense of first fruits. Because Jesus was also the first one to conquer sin and death. He was also the first one of the resurrected. And the one who paved the way for us to be able to spend our eternity with him. That is the example that is set for us in the New Testament. Not about a number, but about a person. You know, in thinking about Jesus' sacrifice and as we, as we move towards the communion table here, there's another interesting thing about, uh, about first fruits and the sacrifice of Jesus that we find in Scripture. You see, we're told, and we're coming up to that time of year, we're told that, um, that Jesus was arrested and killed and resurrected in the springtime. And as Scripture tells us, that that is when it took place. But centuries earlier, as God was instituting this Feast of First Fruits, it happened a couple of days after the Passover, is when they were to bring these offerings to the priest and to declare these things. You see, the Feast of First Fruits was instituted on the very day on which the resurrection was to have happened. So, in a sense, we can see another thread that runs throughout Scripture that putting God first in our lives, that making Him the one in whom we trust for all things. Starts in the Old Testament with these examples and with the institution of first fruits and then finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ who is the one who truly gives us life and gives us joy and gives us hope. And as I listen to stories like that and find this thread that runs through Scripture, it gives me great hope that God is sovereign, that God is in control of all of these events. And if he can manage that, then I should have confidence to be able to trust him my finances, my resources, and to trust him in his promises to give back, as he tells us that we should do. So we're going to further reflect upon that sacrifice that Jesus made, upon the hope of our salvation that we have at this communion table. We have before us the bread, which is symbolic of his body, which was broken for us in our neck. We also have the symbol of, of the cup, which reminds us of his blood, which was shed, that covers over a multitude of sins. And by his sacrifice, by his death, we have life. That great paradox, the greatest paradox of, of history, that as he dies, we live eternally with him. So I invite you to prepare your hearts as we come to this time of receiving communion. The servers can come join us at the front here.